everyone and welcome to Luke Law. A quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. You know what's wild to me? I had to double and triple check this and I'm still not quite believing it. This is my fifth annual episode about folklore monsters from around Christmas time. 2019 was an episode simply about Krampusnacht. Then there was the Krampusnacht special that branched the concept out in 2020. 2021 was rap battles with the Christmas horse. Then 2022 was oops, all Christmas monsters. So yeah, this is the fifth year of Christmas monsters. And you know what's even wilder? I haven't run out of them yet. We have seasonal spirits, the occasional demon, and some out of control goblins this year as the Yule tidings beneath the commercial veneer wait to be unearthed once more. The darkest days remain spooky, with their own things that go bump in the night that are no innocent reindeer alighting upon the roof. Stoke up your hearth because Santa has ways around the fire, worse things do not, and let's see what's waiting out in the cold. Elemental Art There's a classic seasonal entity I've managed to overlook. I don't think I took them too seriously, it wasn't much more than a passing footnote for myself growing up. Then there's how twee they are in a lot of pop culture depictions in recent years, but he is a classic, and there's more to him than I first gave credit. This entity being Jack Frost. Jack Frost finds himself in something of a strange spot in folklore. Go back 200 years or so, and he's a loose collection of anecdotes. Get to the modern era, and while he's present in plenty of places across fiction, Jack Frost has fallen out of oral tradition for one simple factor. He's been defeated by double glazing. It was interesting fern-like patterns of frost on glass windows that would be attributed to Jack Frost. Children will be told these fascinating pieces of natural art crafted from tiny ice crystals are his handiwork, a stark and very present sign of winter being here, which is now something that most people aren't as likely to see anymore with improved housing materials. He's no too furry Easter Bunny or Father Christmas, but despite missing a holiday dedicated to them, basically everyone will have heard of him anyway. When the frost come in, Jack Frost has been about. When your nose has gone numb, Jack Frost has got it. It's the innocent stuff that his name will be chalked up to. You don't tend to see people dying of exposure referred to as being murdered by Jack Frost. Appearing off and on in English literature starting in the 1700s, he doesn't seem all that old as his Jack Frost incarnation, but there are a whole load of old man winter spirits that he seems to fit the bill for. The old man winter archetype is prevalent in any culture the cold times of winter can be anthropomorphized. Gods such as Boreas in ancient Greece give us a bit of a deity old man winter, and Bera, the Gaelic Kelleach, give us an old woman winter, a crone personification of the dead time of the year ahead of rebirth in spring, the final stage of the triple goddess. Jack Frost seems to book the trend by regularly being depicted as young, or at least not old, depending on which Jack Frost you come across. Quite often more a fey creature, a seasonal sprite, something more leaning into mischief and wonder. Again, you don't see people dying of exposure being linked to Jack Frost as his victims, He's much more a graffiti artist using the world as his canvas with the cold as his paint. He isn't usually bundled up warm. Winter is his element and he doesn't need to ward it off. Plus you can find depictions of him with a paintbrush, the tool with which he paints his designs on old window panes and covers the ground in a coat of white. He's invoked when freezing weather hits. Something I'm feeling right now round my way. Despite my Sasquatch-esque physique being built for the cold, even I'm feeling it now. That's how I know it's getting bad. Everyone else begins complaining when I'm still roaming about the place with my jacket open. 
If I'm starting to shiver, everyone else needs to take cover. The occasional horror movie of dubious quality aside, Jack Frost is a figure of whimsy. I'm almost sad I don't get to wake up to frost ferns on my windows, not that superior insulation is a bad thing. But having looked into the weird little guy, I can't help but feel Jack Frost deserves a little more of the holiday limelight. I'll be sparing the frosty sprite more of a thought going forwards, when the air catches my breath, and the morning dew has become a coat of white paint everywhere. Up until I slip on a patch of ice anyway, then I'll probably be cursing him out. Demon Frost Wizard Santa Some form of other of Father Christmas has always stretched across all of Europe, back before the modern era when everything got everywhere thanks to the world getting smaller. Lots of Saint Nicholas variations, but also weirder pagan traditions that Christianity would gradually swallow up. The season at its darkest point generally had some form of celebration of life, and gift giving was a ritual a fair few cultures included as a part of that. This extended into Slavic Eurasia, where winter really meant business, and that gave us what is now known in Russia, the figure known as Dead Moraz. Dead Moraz has a literal translation of Grandfather Frost, being another version of the old man winter trope like Jack Frost. But he's interesting that he seems to be a Father Christmas-like figure who is independent of the Christianized version who spread across the world, that still aligns really well with the contemporary Santa in several ways. The big white beard is very on brand, although not a surprise on a wise grandfather figure. The giant fur coat can look pretty familiar to St. Nicholas fans too, although Dead Moraz appears to have settled on a blue version, more aligned with a winter palette, but he can also be depicted in a red robe with a white trim that is looked famously, or infamously, made popular by the Coca-Cola company, ensuring Santa as we all know him now was brand friendly. Although now I sit with pictures of Dead Moraz open, I wonder if it was more opportunistic than plotted in a boardroom, as the colour scheme for a Santa-ish figure was right there all along to replace St. Nicholas's traditional evergreens. But we're not looking at a simple colour swap clause here. Dead Moraz predates Christianity, a winter wizard wielding a magic staff who was referred to as a snow demon back before being a demon had an entirely negative connotation. While being the demon snow wizard embodiment of Slavic winters is enough to be a total badass, Dead Moraz also got in on the gift-giving of a pagan proto-Santa, like the shamanic Germanic and Norse goat figures of the Yolokpuki, who I talked about in a previous year's Rap Battles with a Marilude episode of Christmas Monsters. Dead Moraz would travel across the snow-blasted north in December, probably around the winter equinox in line with similar traditions, meeting with well-mannered children to reward them with presents for being good. There was a second round of secret gift-giving too in the new year, Staying good during the holidays was a chance for double the rewards. As the tradition went even further east, the tale took on an extra twist that's not really seen anywhere else. Dead Moraz gets a helper for giving gifts and spreading cheer in the dead of winter. Not elves, or even a goat demon buddy. His granddaughter, the Snow Maiden, Snegorachka, joins him in similar long robes of silver blue, sometimes with a crown of snowflakes. This is interesting not just because the Santa analogue has an old mythological familial female counterpart, something unique among these midwinter myths, but where exactly she may have come from is intriguing. Snegorochka is everywhere in Russian literature throughout the 1800s, although is most likely an older figure of folklore who moved into literary traditions. She could be a snow doll who was wished into life, but sometimes is also directly the child of dead Moraz, and another anthropomorphized season, Spring the Beauty, 
at which point her calling dead Mara's grandfather is a form of address given to a father who had a child much older than usual. Snegorochka has an unfortunate habit of tragically melting in her tales, whichever origin story she got. She can meet other children who decide to leap over a fire, causing her to dissolve into vapour when she joins in, or she learns true love and her now warm heart melts her down to nothingness. When getting too close to warm-blooded mortals, she is ephemeral and slips away. When she's with her grandfather, she furs better, keeping humans at a friendly distance but participating in the gift-giving. Dead Moraz and Snegorachka have had a rocky recent history in their homelands. Christianity tried to subsume Dead Moraz into being an avatar of St. Nicholas at intervals, and the Russian Revolution leading to a rejection of Christianity along with wider ideas of religion nearly got him erased from the other direction. Both figures managed to hang in there thanks to their association with New Year, as well as from people cherishing the stories they grew up with, even if a state-mandated ban is attempted. As the USSR gave way to the Russian Federation, and a return of state religion in the country, Dead Moraz and his granddaughter have had a revival. The colour of Grandfather Winter's warm wizardly robes will vary as he gets either mixed up with the Western Father Christmas, or else gets his icy blue robes as a push back against the invading mythology. But people will dress up as him, or Snegorachka, around Christmas and New Year, as well as there being festive decorations of the two being wildly available. The harsher winters do seem to be giving the world a cooler version of Santa though. I mean, come on. Snow Demon Wizard and his Snow Golem Granddaughter. That's just awesome. Before our next section, quick ad break. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. A mix of naughty and nice. There are three European Santa-adjacent mostly human figures I haven't covered as yet, and I thought I'd roll them into one section to box them off before we got to the Christmas goblins. One from Germany, one from France, and an awkward one from the Netherlands. Now, the regions in and around modern-day Germany are pretty Christmas creature dense. We're crossing over with both Krampus and Frau Perkta in places. This unusual figure is called Belsnickel, which I can confirm to fans of the US version of the TV show The Office actually is a real figure of folklore. He's one of a subset of companions for St. Nicholas in regional legends, but he doesn't travel directly with him as part of the gift-giving. There's some gender weirdness going on with Belsnickel as he can be referred to as the Christmas woman while also remaining masculine in nature, something reflected in the women's clothes he wears. He will generally have a grotesque mask and a long tongue, giving him a bit of a Krampus vibe. Belsnickel will turn up a few weeks early to check up on children ahead of a visit following up on the nice list. He would begin by tapping on the windows with a switch he carried before coming into the household. Children would be asked questions, or demanded to give a certain song. Passing these tests would result in sweets and nuts being scattered on the floor, but this itself was a final test. If the children were too quick, greedy, or ill-mannered going for the treats, they may end up with a smack off of Belsnickel's switch. I think they still got to keep the treats even if they failed though, which was nice. This was all part of a Christmas vetting process ahead of Santa coming to town. An extra bonus for the good children 
and a last chance to get their act together for the bad. The focus of Belsnickel does seem to be in the vetting of the naughty children more than confirmation of the nice. He's a figure of folklore that leans into the negative. Coming from the North German Palatinate region, immigrants brought Belsnickel with them to Pennsylvania where he was popular throughout the 1800s. He seems to die off somewhat in the 20th century, which the more I read up, the more it seems to be a century of traditions being killed off. But modern revivals are reclaiming Belsnickel. One or two weeks before Christmas suggests he's active from the 11th to the 18th, and if you bundle him together with Krampus, December becomes a perilous time to be naughty, as the goat demon is out and about on the 5th before that. It does also make it a month of redemption for children. You get multiple chances to stop misbehaving so you don't miss out on the main gift giving at the end of the month. I mean, you could just be good all the time, so you neither get a sack-based thrashing off Krampus nor a whack-off bell-sickle switch, but these meaner figures ranging ahead of Santa give you clear moral guidance should you need the extra incentive. Over in France there is a similar counterpart again in Père Foutard. France has the weirdest attitude towards Christmas figures. Last year we had the flesh-eating scarecrow hands trap. Pierre Fortard, or Old Man Whipper, also has a murderous origin that is directly tied into Saint Nicholas. Either a butcher or an innkeeper, he spots three rich-looking children travelling in the winter. For whatever demented reason, he drugs the kids, then slits their throats to kill them, chops them up, and stews them in a barrel. Now, this is directly linked to the Christian traditions around Christmas, as this was one of pre-Saint Nicholas's miracles. Currently just Nicholas discovered the crime, and resurrected the poor children. The total git perfurtard is then cursed to become a Christmas time assistant of Saint Nicholas as punishment for his terrible misdeeds. Perfurtard is active on Saint Nicholas Day, the 6th of December, filling in for Krampus in French-speaking regions. The whipping father would beat children on the naughty list, and or give out coal instead of presents should you not be good for goodness sake. This gave Saint Nicholas clean hands as the good cop of Christmas, since Pierre Fratard would do the dirty work. We have one last human-like festive figure to box off, and this is the awkward one from the Netherlands. It's Zwarte Piet, translated directly as Black Peter. Zwarte Piet is active around the Feast of St. Nicholas, so the night of the 5th of December or the day of the 6th. The day of the 6th seems to be where he is seen the most in modern celebrations. He will scatter Sinterklaas Strohy Good about the place for good children, a mix of tangerines, speculos cinnamon biscuits, pepernofen dutch biscuits, and the cruidnoten hard cookies that are associated with Sinterklaas in the region, all of which sounds incredibly whimsical. So, how is Zwarte Piet the problematic entry when stacked up with Pierre Furtard and Belsnickel? It's the blackface. Black Peter has what can very generously be called a traditional depiction. It's not good. At all. He very nearly got a total cultural purge, and has been put fully on blast in recent years by various figures around the world. He has managed to bounce back a bit though. People try to excuse the depiction of Zvarta Piet as it being an association with chimneys and getting dirty that way, but that doesn't really hold up when you see what those depictions are. You can check them out online, but probably shouldn't where anyone else can see you doing it. But this has led to a rebranding into Rioet v Piet, or Sooty Piet. Actors dressing as Sooty Piet will use the natural skin tone and apply soot marks, not the other thing, with the total covering of dark makeup and the big red lips. 
it really is quite terrible. Let's move on to the comparatively innocent monsters that want to destroy the world instead. Christmas Goblins. Okay, these little monsters are pretty interesting. Spanning Greece, Turkey, Serbia, and a grab bag of other Asia Minor countries, we have the Kalikantzaros. These are underground dwelling monsters, usually small, though with the occasional giant one thrown in the mix, who cannot come out in the sunlight. Their depictions can vary wildly, but they're generally humanoid with a mixture of animal features thrown in. In any such combination, the vibe they go for is small black devil-like creatures with burning red eyes, which are cool looking in the dark, but nearly blind. Despite going for the tiny devil aesthetic, the killer Kantzaros are not generally considered evil. More mischievous agents of chaos, as well as little dumbasses. Most of the year round, they're happy to get on with their job on the ground, eating bugs and trying to saw through the trunk of the tree that holds up the earth, collapsing it and the earth above, which will be directly on top of them should they ever succeed. I repeat that the killer Kantzaros are considered more dumb little imps in nature than malicious. But as they near the end of their goal, something magical happens. It becomes the 12 days of Christmas. The winter equinox allows them to come to the surface to mess with humans. It isn't until the days begin to lengthen again on January 6th, the epiphany, that they retreat back on the ground. They're fun over. They pick their tools back up to continue their work of dropping the world onto their heads. Only while they have been making a mess above ground, a Christmas miracle has occurred below. The world tree has healed itself, while the Kalikantzaros have had their holiday fun of annoying humans. This way the earth stays in balance, and the Christmas goblins only have a short window to make nuisances of themselves in the human realm. They mostly just want to wreck stuff when they're free to roam the world above them, but they do seem to really enjoy messing with people directly. This is especially present in the Serbian versions of the folklore, where the little buggers are a bit more demonic, yet their focus is on tormenting the sinful. Known as Karakdon Zula in this region, they have a favourite victim, anyone attempting to commit adultery at Christmas. They would sit on the doorframes of houses with an adulterer intent to sneak out on their family to either cheat or visit a prostitute, at which point they would dive on their heads to claw, scratch, and beat with a stick to drive the unwisely horny offender into the forest, where they would ride them around until daybreak when the goblin would have to retreat back on the ground. This is something the creatures would be known to do to anyone they catch roaming about the night, but adulterers got actively sorted out for the treatment. Not quite the tumble they were expecting that night, as a hollering Christmas goblin lands on their head to play sinner jockey. As they go on their mischief rampages, they can be distracted in a few ways. They're pretty bad at counting, but are easily lured into attempting it anyway. One way of doing so is to leave a colander out on your back step, which will then leave them attempting to count all the holes until dawn when they'll have to flee the sunlight. Their attempts at counting can be further confounded in some variations of their folklore, in which they cannot count above the number two, as three is a holy number, and if they should ever count to it, they would explode. Bless their dumb mischievous hearts that they would still give every hole on a colander a go, when they have to stop at two every time, but give it a try anyway. They also like lucamades, a kind of syrup-filled donut, as well as any sausages going spur. Throwing them onto your roof as a distraction will set them off looking for someone else to bother since you fed them treats. In some traditions, you need to accompany the festive food yeeting with a special song. Plus, you're just moving the problem along this way, and potentially causing goblin rage when they move onto a house that doesn't feed them. Being extremely Christmas-themed, 
Their favourite point of ingress to treasure house is via the chimney. You can keep them at bay by keeping a fire burning overnight, so in this way places that observe a yule log to keep burning for 12 days get bonus Calicantzaras proofing. You can also burn old shoes to drive them away with the smell, burn incense for a more pleasant smelling alternative ward, and you can also use ash from the fireplace to draw a black cross on your doors as a deterrent at Christmas Eve, when the little mayhem merchants will be at the most active. Legends hold that any child born on one of the 12 days of Christmas is in danger of transforming into a new Calicantzaros at Christmas time, so watch out for Christmas babies. They may be goblins waiting to happen. You can purify a baby with special clothing mixing garlic and or straw, or when they're older, you can singe a child's toenails to ward off the transformation. Luclaw does not condone the singeing of any part of a child, even if they are really annoying around the holidays, so the one-time baby purification is recommended if you're really worried about offspring going literal goblin mode. Just having a happy home at the holidays, plus taking care should you go out at night, seems to be enough to ward off the Christmas goblins, although if you do spot the little monsters out on the holiday warpath, breaking out the countable kitchenware and sparing some pigs in blankets as roof distractions may be wise. The difference between getting your house trashed out of mischief or malice is pretty moot if the Calicant Zaros pile down your chimney. That's all for this year of Christmas Monsters, I'm a little worried I'm close to tapped out now. I've got a whole year to try and find more though, so I hope to pull it off yet. There's definitely a benevolent Christmas giant I haven't done, there's Mother Gryla's husband, and I could come back to Beira or Boreas for some winter deities. I could also pivot into more general winter monsters. I'll work something out. Finding more creepy Christmas folklore is too fun not to. I'm confident I've got at least one more of these in me, and I may yet surprise myself. I honestly didn't expect to find as many festive monsters as I have, and discovering even more has become an annual highlight for me on my journey as a folklorist. Luke Law is a Ghost Story Guys production. If you do want to contact me, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com, and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day contact, as well as a very active Instagram account a lot of the community gets involved with. If you want to support the show directly, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. We do have Luke Law merchandise available at the Ghost Story Guys online store. Feel very free to show off any you do get online. We have an ongoing push to promote Luke Law more, and the dedicated Facebook group for the show is a pretty active success if you want to come join us over there. As ever though, the absolute best thing anyone could do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now. <laughs>